your Bibles with you, uh, please go ahead and, and open to the book of Hebrews. Uh, we'll be reading together chapter 9, verses 15 to 18. So Hebrews 9, verses 15 to 18. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore he, that is Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has recurred that redeemed them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Amen. This ends the reading of God's word. And if you'll pray with me. Our God and Father, we thank you that you are a God who has revealed yourself to us, and that you've revealed yourself as a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding with steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together would be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Not everything is a life or death issue. Uh, my wife and I disagree as to whether or not crunchy or creamy peanut butter is the best kind of peanut butter. Uh, but this doesn't have ultimate significance in our lives. Uh, whether or not the toilet seat should be up or down is not the ultimate thing in a household. Or with things even more important, deciding on a career path, uh, buying a home, uh, formulating new ministry, ministry strategies, uh, even those things don't have an ultimate life or death significance. And you and I, we face so many issues on a daily basis uh, that it's easy to get trapped into thinking that things are more important than they actually are, or that people's opinions 
matter more than they actually do, or, or that we ourselves and our own desires are the most significant thing. Why do we get so caught up in the little things? Why do we tend to make a bigger deal about issues than we should? I would suggest that it's because we've lost perspective. And this passage of Scripture this evening gives us an eternal perspective. Because for Christ, our salvation in Him was a life and death issue. Our life with God could only be secured by His death for us on the cross and His resurrection from the dead three days later. And so God's Word here is is teaching us something that is literally of life or death significance to each and every one of us this evening. And it all centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so what I want us to understand from this text together this evening is that because Jesus spilled His blood on the cross once and for all, He redeemed us from sin and He brought us near to God. And we're going to look at two points. Uh, The first is the first covenant. And under each point, there will be three sub-points, and I'll get to those in a moment. But the first point is the first covenant, and the second point is a better sacrifice. So first covenant, better sacrifice. And, And as we consider this teaching from Hebrews together, I want us to keep in mind that it's only because Jesus shed his blood on the cross once and for all that he redeemed us from our sin and brought us near to God. So our first point, uh, the first covenant. In many ways, the book of Hebrews actually serves as a guide on how to read and understand the Old Testament. Uh, Some of us may be tempted to kind of overlook the Old Testament because sometimes it's difficult to understand or difficult to see the relevance of it in our lives. Uh, But when we don't seek to study God's Word in the Old Testament, we actually miss some amazing things about Jesus. Uh, because the, the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, both Old and New Testaments, they testify to Christ. And so all the stories, all the instructions, all the prophecies of the Old Testament, they teach us more and more about the person and work of Christ for our salvation. And so the book of Hebrews really gives us an interpretive lens on how to read the Old Testament in such a way that we see Christ coming through those passages. So our first sub-point under the first covenant is that it was inaugurated with the blood of calves and goats. One thing you might have noticed at first when we read through the passage was the prominence of blood. What is the deal with all the blood, you may be thinking, Well, first, we should know that blood was part of making a covenant. And a covenant in the Bible is is an oath-bound promise. It's it's the way that God relates to his people. And so God, he makes a promise to his people, and then in the covenant, he explains to them how they are to relate to him. And so if you look at verses 18 to 20 in our text, it makes reference to the book of Exodus, uh, where Moses received God's law, his covenant on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, and And he read the book of God's law to the people. And they responded by saying, 
all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. And so then Moses splattered the blood of bulls and goats all over the people, over the book itself, um, all over the altar. This is what our text refers to as the first covenant. Now, to our ears, that may sound really strange. I mean, it, it should sound kind of strange because do we see that? Do we see that today? Um, no, it, it almost sounds kind of primitive, maybe a little disturbing. But this is how people in the ancient world would make a covenant. What, what they were doing in that, in that slaughtering of the animal is that the parties of the covenant were saying, if I don't uphold my end of this, this promise, then may what's happening to this bull happen to me. Seems a little extreme, though. I mean, today we do things a little differently, right? Uh, we, uh, we sign long contracts with lots of legal terminology, plenty of fine print. Uh, or we get a, a public notary to witness our signature on a document. Or we swear by putting our left hand on the Bible and, and raising our right hand. But in the Old Testament, it was the blood of calves and goats, how God used, that God used to put the covenant into force, the covenant that he made with, with Israel. And so through that, he was actually showing his people something. He was showing them the seriousness of the covenant that he was making with them. He was showing them that this covenant was a life or death matter. But what, what is it that made God's covenant a life or death matter? What was so important about it? Why all the blood? Well, simply put, because of sin. Sin is the word that the Bible uses uh, to describe any act of disobedience to God's law, uh, any transgression of what God has commanded us to do. And throughout the Old Testament, we are taught that Sinful people simply cannot come into the presence of a holy God. If we were to try, we would be utterly destroyed because God is holy beyond all comparison. God is so utterly pure and righteous that nothing the least bit impure or unholy can approach Him. But the thing is, God wants His people to come near to Him. He wants them to come to him and to have life. But they can't. They can't until their sins are first dealt with. So how are the sins dealt with? Is it us? Do, do we have to do something? No, only God can. So how does he do it? Well, let's look at verse 22 together. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, we need to understand that uh, God wasn't just arbitrarily demanding animal blood as if there was something inherently worthy about the blood of animals uh, to uh, make a place for us with him. No, the reason God was calling for the blood of animals and why that's so prominent in the Old Testament is because God wanted people to understand the depravity of their sin, the, the gravity of what they were doing, and how only the death of an innocent substitute would be enough for them to escape his judgment and to find a place with him in his holy presence. 
And so this isn't just an Old Testament thing. This has powerful implications for us today. Um, Do we understand how grave our sin against God really is? Do we see the pride or or the selfishness or, or the lack of love for God in our lives for what it really is? Do we understand that our impatience and and anger with our family is, is sin against the Lord of all creation. I'm often slow to recognize that. You know, the sins of, of fleshly lusts and, or, or failing to love our neighbors as ourselves, it's, it's an offense against the God of all glory and majesty and power. You know, pastors aren't exempt from these kinds of sins either. And the more we look at God's holy law like a mirror, the, the more we see how far we fall short of what He's t- teaching us to do and what He commands of us. And God's Word teaches us that the penalty for our sin against Him is death. This is what God is trying to show His people through all the animal sacrifices So that brings us to our second sub-point. The the first covenant had repeated sacrifices. Um, The problem with the animal sacrifices in Israel is that one wasn't enough. Uh, God's people were constantly defiling themselves before Him, and so they needed sacrifices to be constantly made for their sins and impurities. Uh, And God gave very specific instructions and regulations about which sacrifices to offer and how to offer them. And it was an everyday thing under the first covenant. Every day. Uh, One prominent example that we see in the Old Testament about repeated sacrifices, uh, we see in the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. Every year, if you're familiar with this, the high priest would enter into the temple or the tabernacle, uh, the place where God's presence dwelled with his people, where he met with his people. And he would come into the most holy place, a place, the place where God's glory was so present that the high priest's life was at risk. <laughs> and in fact, preparing for this, there was an extensive ceremony where he had to do ritual washings and, and everything in order to enter into God's presence. But once he was ready, he would come into the Holy of Holies before the presence of the Lord, the inner part of the temple, and He would have already sacrificed a bull for his own sins and and a goat for the sins of the people. And then he would take the blood and he would sprinkle it all over the Ark of the Covenant, over the instruments of worship in the temple. And everything was covered in blood in order to make atonement for the people's sins. And then after this, he would take another goat. But this time, instead of slaughtering it, he would lay his hands on it symbolically transferring the sins of the people onto the goat and he would send that goat off into the wilderness taking their sins away this is what God required of his people every year for the forgiveness of their sins every year the same ceremony would take place so that the people would be fit for God to dwell with them and on top of this the daily sacrifices were happening (laughs) Just imagine the scene of the temple. 
it was a mess. Blood everywhere. So you may still be thinking, you know, was the blood of these innocent animals really necessary in order for God to forgive his people? I mean, isn't there a better way? And the author of Hebrews actually answers that question for us in chapter 10 where he says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So why then did God command his people to do all this? And this is our third sub-point. The first covenant had copies of the heavenly things. Copies. Um, because the temple, the sacrifices, all the Old Testament rituals, they were types. They were shadows of a more beautiful and more permanent reality to come. And like our text says in verse 23, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Because God was showing his people that he was going to give them something far better. He was going to give them Jesus. And so all scripture from Old to New Testaments testifies to the work in the person of Christ. All the sacrifices, the temple, and even the covenant itself is pointing to him. Because no matter how ambitious the people of Israel were in, in seeking to obey the commands of the Lord, they could never live up to all of them. And, and the blood of animal sacrifices could never ultimately, ultimately and finally take away sins, no matter how frequent they were. The temple was never meant to stand forever, despite how beautifully it was built. Because God's intention from the very beginning was to send his son to fulfill the law, to shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins, and to prepare a place where God and his people can dwell together for eternity. Jesus is the one who came as the reality to which all these types and shadows just only pointed. For an illustration, it's, it's kind of like when a little boy is, is playing with his favorite toy car and he's driving it down and he's, I'm racing. And then dad comes by and says, you know what, son? One of these days I'll buy you a car and you'll have the real thing and you'll actually get to zoom down the road like that. Or if a little girl is, is playing house and playing with her dolls, uh, caring and feeding, for, feeding them and, and then her mom comes by and lovingly says, you know, one of these days when you have the real thing, your love and care for them will be so much greater than you could imagine. The illustration, it falls short, right? but God is saying, Christ, he is the one of whom all these things were pointing. He is the reality, and we have him. He's the reality of what God was foreshadowing through the sacrificial system. Jesus is the one who brings fulfillment and completion to everything that God was doing and everything that he was promising through biblical history. And so that brings us to our second point, uh, a better sacrifice, a better sacrifice. Because this is what the book of Hebrews is all about. The book of Hebrews is proving to us and, and to the people of its day, and when it was originally written, that Jesus is better 
than all the types and shadows of the old covenant. Jesus is better than anything that this world could ever give us. Early in the Gospel of John, there's a record of John the Baptist's ministry. And John the Baptist, he was the forerunner of Christ, the one preparing the way for him to come. And he was baptizing people in the Jordan River in preparation for for the Lord's coming. And one day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. Jesus was walking toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is called the Lamb of God. And now we understand why. Because he came as the spotless sacrifice whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And so our, our first sub-point under this is that we are washed with Christ's blood. We are washed with his blood. Because the problem of our sin calls for something much more than the death of an animal. Our sin and disobedience to God requires justice to be served. And so either that justice is going to be meted out to us and we'll face the penalty for our sins or that justice can be satisfied by a mediator. A mediator is a person who who comes between us and God. And Christ came as our faithful high priest who instead of offering the blood of bulls and goats, he offered his own blood who endured the punishment for our sin, the punishment that we deserve. Jesus is our mediator. It's interesting, the Bible speaks a lot about the blood of Christ, right? Uh, Have you ever thought about why? Why does the blood of Christ come up so frequently? Well, it's not because the, the actual physical blood of Jesus has any inherent power in it, but because his blood represents his death. Because when Jesus shed his blood on the cross, he died. He died to remove the penalty of sin from all of his people. And not only did he save us from an eternal death, but he gave us his own perfect righteousness as a gift of his grace, something that we could never earn. And, and that's what it means to be washed in the blood of Christ, it, to be forgiven of all the things that we've done against God, of all of our sin. And it's to be accepted and loved by God that could only be earned by the work of Jesus and his merit. Jesus became our mediator, the one who comes between us and God so that we can come to God without fear of judgment, so that we can come to God with confidence and joy, knowing that we're purified by the blood of Christ. Now you might be sitting here saying to yourself, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty decent person. Like, kind of have a hard time believing that the Son of God would have to spill his blood and, and die in order to, for me to be forgiven. But you know, part of our problem as sinful people is, is that we're often blind to our own sin. We don't see it. We we tend to see the faults in other people way more clearly, right? Um, but we're more, we're, it's harder for us to see it in ourselves, and I, I'm certainly that way as well. But the thing is, each and every one of us has sinned against God. We've all broken his law, 
uh, even despite our best intentions. And what we deserve is nothing short of the death sentence for our rebellion against him. I mean, even the smallest sin is worthy of God's condemnation. And that's why there's nothing that we can do about it ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to make up for it. We don't need a self-help manual. We don't need more advice on how to live. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. And so, leading into our second sub-point, the the better sacrifice was one sacrifice for all time. Because thanks be to God, He has provided that Savior. He's given us Jesus who can save us totally and completely. You see, when, when Jesus died on the cross, He died once and for all. So that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And he died as one who, as verses 15 and 16 say, made a will so that we would receive an inheritance as a result of his death. Now, of course, this reference to a will is, is, is an analogy because normally when someone makes a will and they die and you receive the inheritance, they don't come back to life. <laughs> but Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, securing our place with God for, in heaven forever. You see, Christ's sacrifice was different than all the sacrifices of the Old Testament because he fulfilled what they only foreshadowed. He was the final and effective sacrifice once and for all. Jesus, by his death, finally and wholly has done away with our sins, buried them in his death and overcoming them and conquering them by his mighty resurrection on the third day. Christ was only sacrificed once and then his work was done. Even as he was hanging on the cross, he said, it is finished. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're not re-sacrificing the Son of God, but we are communing with him, the risen Christ, the living Lord. And that's exactly why we call it the communion meal, because we're drawing near to him in faith, receiving the benefits of of all his love and grace to us. The blood of the covenant was shed by the Lord Jesus once and for all for our sins so that we would be forgiven and washed clean and spotless to stand before the throne of God. We're all going to die one day. Verse 27 in our text reminds us of that is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Death is a sad reality of our fallen world. Uh, But even Jesus himself tasted death so that all who trust in him can have life eternal. And verse 28 continues saying that So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So whether we die first or or Christ comes again, all of us will stand before the judgment seat of God. And so what is your plea on that day? 
There's only one plea that could ever give you confidence to stand before God without shame and without fear. And that plea is the shed blood of Jesus Christ for you. And that plea alone, that He gave Himself for your sins. And so our third sub-point is the promise of redemption. Because a better sacrifice gives us the promise of redemption. Jesus came from His heavenly glory in order to live and to die, to fulfill that promise, the promise of redemption, to be purchased by His blood, to be bought from our slavery to sin and death and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. And that promise is ratified in His blood. His death, which paid the debt of our sins in full. The promise that even though there's nothing that we can do to make up for our own sinfulness, that Jesus, once and for all, has secured our place with God by giving Himself over to the death that we deserved. And by doing so, He has brought us near to the throne of grace, brought us near to the God of all glory, and by His sacrifice, He's given us an intimacy with God that is closer and more beautiful than any human relationship. It's amazing that God knows us more fully and at the same time loves us more deeply than anyone in this world ever could. And so this truth, if, if you believe it, has immense practical uh, influence uh, for our lives every day. Well, how? It assures us that we have an eternal inheritance. That the things of this world, though, though they grip us sometimes, we, we know we have something so much better and we don't have to ki- get caught up in the, all the little things of the world. This truth gives us confidence that if God loved us enough to give His own Son over to death for us, how much more will He give us all the things that we need? We can trust Him. We can trust Him. This truth gives us strength to face the challenges of this life because we know that God is for us, that He's with us through the trials, in the midst of the difficulty. This truth gives us hope that even though life can be miserable and painful, the suffering won't last forever. The truth of God's redeeming love in Jesus gives us this eternal perspective on our lives here and now so that we won't become slaves to the, the fleeting pleasures of this world, that we won't be drawn into these things that, that lead us down a path of, of death. Because God calls us to something so much greater. The heart of the Father is pleading with us to find our satisfaction and our delight in Him. Having a nearness to Him, which is where the only true joy can be found. You know, when we come to grips with these, with these things, we, we won't be so concerned about what people think um, or what they say about us because we know who we are. We're children of a heavenly Father who gave His own Son over to death so that we could belong to Him forever. 
This is our true identity as Christians. And so through faith, trusting in God's redeeming love, we begin to see a little bit more and more and more each day just the matchless value of what it means to know Him and to worship Him, to fulfill the very purpose for which He made us, to glorify and enjoy Him forever. Because the gospel really is the power of God to salvation, to change us from from the inside out. And so to wrap up, We've just seen a little preview, just a, a small <laughs> little view of, of how the book of Hebrews reveals the centrality of Christ throughout the whole Bible, uh, both Old and New Testaments, t- teaching us and telling us about Christ, our Lord and Savior. And they teach us that he was the one who came to spill his blood on the cross once and for all so that we would be redeemed from our sin and brought near to God. And so that means there's nothing that we can do to add to or or take away from the saving work of Jesus that he has accomplished once and for all. So I'd urge you, cling to Jesus. Cling to him and know that in him you'll have everything you'll ever need. And that even though you die, yet you will live through him who loved you and gave himself for you. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are immensely grateful for your goodness to us. Lord, there is no way that we could have put you in our favor to uh, get you to send your Son, but Lord, you were pleased to do so because you loved sinners. And Lord, we thank you that your grace saves us from our sin and and changes us from the inside out so that we might seek to follow you all of our days and walk in your way as those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So thank you for Jesus. And thank you that he is our high priest to secure our place with you in heaven forever. We pray that you'd strengthen our faith and help us to look to him all the more. Pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.